Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in National Security. I'm Paul, the host of your channel. Today, we're going to be talking with Alex Strick van Linschoten and Felix Kuhn, researchers and writers based in Europe. They've been working in Afghanistan since 2006, focusing on the Taliban insurgency and the history of southern Afghanistan. They are the authors of An Enemy We Created, the myth of the Taliban al-Qaeda merger in Afghanistan, 1970 to 2010. The book is published by Hearst. Hi, Alex Felix, and welcome to New Books in National Security. I'm happy to have you both here today to talk about us with uh, talk with us about your fascinating book. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Uh, perhaps you could start us off with a little bit about yourselves and how you came to meet and study this field, and eventually end up working in the region. Um, well, I uh, uh, we we both um, kind of were, were studying Arabic together uh, in London at School of Oriental and African Studies. And um, I had just kind of started first traveling to Afghanistan in uh, late 2004. Um, and kind of the next year, uh, Felix came along as well. We would both had had a kind of an interest in places like Afghanistan before. Um, and, you know, we spent a, a few years just kind of getting to know the place, um, learning the languages and so on. Um, and then we started uh, working together on a kind of... Um, uh, research slash media monitoring service that maybe Felix can talk about. Um, yeah, we 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 um, we had been living together in the Middle East and Syria actually, and had uh, gotten to know a service called Mid East Wire, which is translating new local news sources uh, in the Arabic world. Um, and uh, we went to Afghanistan and decided to uh, to try to do that ourselves. And uh, I ran uh, a service that, that was called Afghan Wires for a couple, Afghan Wire for a couple of years that took uh, 
local news sources um, and tr uh, translated them into English, um, publishing like a, a daily newsletter. Um, and I, I think that was our first real project within Afghanistan. And then afterwards, yeah, you know, we kind of got involved working on um, a uh, 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 the autobiography of a senior Taliban leader um, who'd just been released from Guantanamo, um, as well as um, this book that we're talking about today, uh, later on, about the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and then also a book of um, translated poems published on the Taliban's website by kind of members and affiliates uh, of uh, of their governments. So we've kind of been working for, well, in in and around Afghanistan for the last uh, for the last ten years. Um, part of that we were living in Kandahar permanently, and and part of it we were we were in other places. So was an enemy we created a natural follow-on to, to the work you did on uh, Zaif's uh, memoir, uh, My Life with the Taliban? Um, I, I wouldn't say it was a natural follow-on. I think it was a subject that um, was of uh, was of real interest to the both of us, and was also of of, of importance to to international policy. Um, so, it, an enemy we created actually started out um, as. A report rather than a book. Um, uh, we had been asked by Barnett Rubin, uh, who uh, at the time worked, uh, I think, at the State Department or advised the State Department, um, uh, to to compile a very brief uh, report about um, the relationship of the Taliban and Al Qaeda and 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 what what kind of information we could gather about it. And uh, out of that initial very brief report we were supposed to compile, um, we, we ended up uh, writing an enemy we created. Uh, it just was very soon very apparent that in order to really understand the relationship between these two entities, we needed to have quite a big background in... Um, the history of, uh, of Islamism throughout the Middle East in some way, and uh, also need to understand in details where where the roots of the Taliban actually came from. Um, so, so it, it it started out as as a as a simple few questions, and it soon ballooned into something far far greater that that uh, then later on became an enemy we created. The things that I really enjoyed about the book was its depth of analysis and the many different layers uh, that, it, that it worked on. Mm -hmm. Even the title works on at least the two levels, <laughs> um, alluding to the West's role in the Taliban's emergence, but then also this subsequent post-9-11 conflation of al-Qaeda with their Taliban hosts. Why did you feel that this myth of a unitary Taliban al-Qaeda entity was so pernicious uh, that it deserved this book-length rebuttal? Well, I think I mean, that, that that's kind of an interesting question, and you know, Felix often tells the story of a conversation he has had with his brother about, um, uh, you know, when when he explained that we were writing this long book, and he kind of showed this big wadge of papers of you know the draft of the text, um, and you know, we're writing this book about you know how the Taliban are different from from Al Qaeda and so on. Trying to trying to show some of the differences, and the brother said, "Well, you know, that's obvious. Everyone knows that they're different groups." Uh, and so, you know, on one level, um, you know, there is some sense, uh, I think, in, at least in certain circles, that you know, obviously they're different groups. But as we're seeing, you know, even up till the present day, um, there's quite a strong tendency um, 
to kind of uh, dehistoricize, decontextualize um, uh, the kind of the the very extensive history of of many of these groups. And, um, you know, it's quite common still, unfortunately, uh, for people to say, well, you know, all Islamists are Islamists and they're all more or less the same. They all kind of believe the same thing. So we should all lump them together in the same basket. And, um, uh, you know, yeah, we, we see this in, in you know, the, the mountains of analysis which are coming out on Islamic State and, and things related to that uh, uh, in Iraq and Syria these days. So, um at the time, um, the, 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 the relationship between the Taliban and al-Qaeda was important specifically for the, for the purposes of um, negotiations. Um, you know, the United States um, could only possibly, you know, conceive of engaging with the Taliban politically, uh, politically and um, uh, diplomatically um, if there was um, some sense that this group was different from al-Qaeda. So... Um, uh, in order to kind of disentangle this, uh, we had to kind of go back, right back to the beginning. Um, but, you know, as, as we talk about in the book, there were, you know, almost from the second or third day after September 11th attacks in 2001, um, you know, you have very senior people in the White House saying, you know, the Taliban and al-Qaeda are the same thing. So uh, untangling them, and allowing kind of the, the, the history of the relationships between the individuals and the groups. Um, I think both is, is closer to reality, but it also allowed for um, uh, politically for, uh, for the United States, I think, to, uh, to take the idea of kind of diplomatic engagement with the Taliban uh, more seriously uh, in recent years. The research that obviously went into this book was pretty astounding. Um, the memoirs, speaking with numerous experts, and perhaps most impressively, uh, managing to interview both Taliban uh, and so-called Afghan Arabs. How were you two able to cultivate such a rich variety of sources in such a volatile region, particularly given that this topic is still, I'm sure, very sensitive uh, to the present day? Yeah, um and I think that's that's uh, where where obviously the the book we did before an enemy we created helped us out a lot when we worked very closely for a very long time um, with uh, Mullah Abdul Zalam Zaif, uh, one of the founding members of the Taliban. Um, and then uh, moving down to Kandahar helped. I think we had um, quite a unique approach in a way that, that we could afford a lot of things because we were poor in a way. We moved down originally from Kabul to Kandahar because we had not enough money to actually stay in Kabul. Um, and uh, an Afghan friend of us invited us to Kandahar. So we we situated ourselves in, in, in Kandahar, which allowed us... Yeah, we had no time limits. So, so there was no... You know, in a, in a in a quite normal research process, often you you have quite a limit of time frame you spend in the field trying to find the, the individuals that can supply you with with the information you're looking for, and and we sort of didn't do that really. We started to spend a lot of time just with um, with friends down in southern Afghanistan, um, and uh, the the birthplace of the Taliban is Kandahar in a lot of ways, and it's also one of the most embattled places within Afghanistan, specifically when we were living there. So it's it, it, it doesn't take a long time um, for when you, you know, once you start 
living uh, in the community, um, someone's cousin will always have been or will be fighting with the insurgency. Somebody will know someone. Uh, and it was quite an, a, a, a natural process of growing a network um, of, of people we met on a regular basis and therefore were able to build you know, uh, an amount of trust and report with them. Um, and, and that allowed us to, to discuss even sensitive topics like, uh, like the one of that, that we're, we, we explored in an enemy we created. I mean, obviously it's not the, um, the healthiest option possibly for two young white males to go around South and Afghanistan asking if somebody knows someone from Al Qaeda. Um, <laughs> but I think, uh, uh I think it was because we were down there, it was because people knew us, it was because we weren't coming in for one week, it, we stayed, uh, I don't know what Alex's longest stretch was, I think my longest stretch in Kandahar was 11 months without leaving, um, uh, I think Alex spent spent more time there at some point. So so you, you really kind of like, we live there, and once you live there um, uh, and you're, you have certain kind of interests, you, it was very easy to form kind of like like trusting relationships with individuals who would share their personal stories um, and, and share their, their their history and their opinion with you. And then over that, you could start to approach other people. Um, so, yes, and uh, being down also, in Kandahar, we also didn't really spend, we didn't really do anything else <laughs> for the time we, we were working every day, seven days a week on, on, on this question. I mean, we spent, we spent a lot of time um, in a kind of very non-structured way, and I think um, uh, certainly if I were were to start kind of working on something longer like this again, I, I definitely would want to take the time to do things in this kind of more non-structured way. And that, uh, like Felix said, you know, um, uh, it's it, it wasn't wasn't so much about getting to the bottom of this specific question, but also understanding all of the surrounding issues as well, or at least attempting to explore them. So, you know, when you sit down with people, um, we also had, a, had you know, a rule essentially not to, to talk about stuff that was going on right now, because, you know, when you're talking about, you know, what's happening with the Taliban in X place or Y place at the moment, then, you know, you, you can be mistaken for kind of questions that, that, you know, a spy or something like this would, would ask. So we talk a lot about history and we would talk a lot, a lot to people about their memories of the 1980s and the 1990s. And I think one of the strongest things about, about the book are those, those um, details and the things that we uncovered about the 80s and the 90s, the history of which still hasn't really been been written or uncovered. And I think we both believe quite strongly that if you want to understand what's what's going on right now, you have to really look into the networks, into the relationships, into the stories of um, you know people who were involved during that time. Um, and when you talk about history, it's kind of a neutral area for people to uh, to discuss, and you know, quite often people will will never have told their stories of the 1980s war and so on. So you build a lot of rapport that way. It's a it's it's an area where people are able to talk freely without worrying that, that you know this information is going to be uh, misused or some way. Um, and you know, in, in that way, it was kind of fruitful. Yeah, and I I also feel like uh, by by living in Kandahar and, and living you know, amongst, amongst Afghans, friends of ours, you, 
not even doing research, you just kind of start to understand um, the individuals, who they are, um, whether they are Taliban or not, and, and you kind of learn learn about society. Um, and I think in, in, in places like Thousand Afghanistan, where society is is so differently structured to, to at least where I come from, which is Germany, um, but which I would argue, you know, is the same for, for a lot of the Western world. Um, it's, it, it informs a lot of your, um, of your analysis later on. And I feel that's one of the biggest strengths of, of the book. Um, it's not just being able to, um, to have a conversation with individuals who have been involved, but it's also being kind of understanding what they're telling you because you understand the sort of place they're coming from um, and, and, and how they conceptualize things and what is of importance to them um, when, they, when, when it comes to, to actions they did in the past or, or, or right now. So I think that, that really that changed a lot of my views um, from when I first came to Afghanistan to, 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 to later on when we lived in Kandahar for a while. Yeah, and it, it comes out in the book quite a bit that it's obviously being written not from the point of view of a sort of armchair expert on the subject, but that you both have a pretty rich understanding of the context that in some ways could probably only be informed by being there and meeting the people who were involved in these events. Um, although I am curious, uh, despite the fact that you stuck to history and you had good connections. Were there moments where you felt like you were at risk despite these facts? Not, not really. I mean, obviously, um, well, actually maybe someone else would probably answer the question differently. I mean, you know, we had, you know, our <laughs> windows blown out and we had, you know, IEDs go off, you know, within a few hundred meters of our house on a very regular occasion, a very regular occurrence, like particularly during one summer. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, you know, that the, there have been, there have been a, f- a few things like that, but, um, and, you know, being, um, somewhat conspicuously, you know, n- known particularly towards the end of our time in Kandahar as, you know, the two foreigners who live in Kandahar and, you know, there was, there was, you know, there were, you know, uh, assassins roaming around, around the city and so on. So you had to be kind of wary of that, obviously, um, but nothing I would say specifically, aside from all of that, nothing specifically targeting targeting us. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's you know like risk and, and how you perceive it is a very personal issue. I feel in a lot of ways. Um, like if I would have had been living there in fear of my life every day, I don't think I would have stayed. Like it's, it's you know um, I think there we also just by 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 living with afghan friends and being there for a long time there's just there's a battery of things you follow from your day-to-day day life um and also things you don't do i mean there were times like this this one summer alex is talking about and specifically then towards the end um uh, when when we, we sort of left uh where where the situation the security situation in this in the city deteriorated to a degree that that uh that going out was 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 not a not not a normal thing anymore, and it was it wasn't just us. Like it wasn't a normal thing for our Afghan friends anymore, uh, just because the number of assassinations that would happen on a daily basis, like you know, was it, every day between five and twenty people would get killed, was in the city limits. Um, 
and and yes, like so, you, you know, you 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 kind of you, you don't ignore that. Um, you you live with that, and you try to mitigate the risk as best you can. And like once you feel uncomfortable, I think you should leave. And I think that's that's sort of what we did. Um, and and at some points, uh, but yeah, I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't think I wasn't fear of my life. Um, uh, not more than than I think our Afghan friends were. Um, um, I think even experts are sometimes prone to this labeling of all Sunni militant organizations with the Salafist or the Wahhabi brand, whatever you want to call it. But as you point out, Diobandism lies at the core of the Taliban's religious identity. How does the Taliban's ideology differ from the Saudi Salafist flavor of Islam that motivated the Afghan Arabs? Um, well, I mean, they, they have completely different uh different histories really um you know deobandism uh is a uh, a movement which kind of sprung out of kind of india and um also you know draws a lot on the kind of response to uh to the british presence and draws on on on, on things like you know the, the the british uh schooling system and it was an attempt to kind of standardize and in in some ways kind of modernize uh, the way Islamic education was being done, um, uh, certainly towards the, the kind of late, late 19th century. Um, and uh, it spread to, through, uh, throughout the subcontinent um, uh, and, and was very important for, um, uh, for the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 Education of of clergy um, in in Afghanistan um, in earlier earlier years um, you would have clerics who would uh, travel and actually study in in Deoband um, but uh, particularly um, you know in the mid to late twentieth uh, century um, you had the spread of kind of Deobandism uh, in Pakistan particularly uh, and certainly um, after. Um, Pakistani President Zia-ul-Haq um, really kind of um, expanded uh, madrasa education and funding for the expansion of uh, Islamic uh, religious seminaries and so on across across Pakistan. Then then this really kind of uh, took off as well. So people, you know you wouldn't need to go to uh, to Deoband necessarily to to be exposed um, to expo- to be uh, exposed to this. Yeah, it's it's. Um in, in a way, it's a little bit funny because I mean the the the, the view on the on the Afghan Taliban internationally is like this this, this retrograde movement that that uh, uh, you know is is against culture, is against education, is against women's education, uh, and all these things. Um, and and actually, when we when we when we look at a little bit more detail into like Deobandism, but also what the Taliban, how they interpreted Deobandism and what they took out of their personal education, because obviously there's always uh, a difference between um, between a theoretical approach and 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 how it is actually lived from day to day. You know, um, the the first internet class um, and the first computers uh, were actually installed uh, in Kabul University during the Taliban regime. They were fiercely against TV, but they did teach, um, I believe, an uh, internet curriculum that was based on the University of Nebraska's course at the time. Uh, it might be your own university, but it was an American university. I remember that much. Um, 
So, so there were um, there were different approaches towards uh, education, um, and uh, that that differed quite widely. Um, there were incidents, you know, like in the local flavor um, of 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 the Taliban's ideology, um, and specifically also how how Islam is lived within many places within Afghanistan. There's there's quite a big big part. Where, where there's uh, shrines and saints, local local people that are remembered and, and, and where, where people tend to, to, to migrate to the places to pray, often for specific things, um, which is obviously, that, that, that is something that was, was tolerated and at times practiced by, by a lot of Taliban themselves. While this would be considered absolute heresy um, and was considered absolute heresy by uh, uh, by other foreign foreign Islamists, specifically people from from the Wahhabi brand or, or, or Salafists, who 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 we have um, uh, stories where they would uh, desecrate shrines or would would, would destroy um, uh, um, grave graveyards, um, which 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 had like kind of like shrine installments and, and so forth. So it's uh, uh, there were quite quite big differences in a lot of ways. And also, I mean, to, to go back to your question as well, there were, you know, very strong um, uh, Sufi influences within uh, within Deobandism, uh, in part, you know, in terms of where the original um, kind of founding group of teachers um, uh, and educators um, uh, came were coming from, but also in, in terms of how, how Deobandism was practiced and the kinds of places where it spread to. Uh, this was a very strong and kind of, uh, resonant part of the, the the daily lived kind of Islamic experience, um, which again is 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 quite different from how uh, how many kind of Salafists uh, interpret it. I mean, again, you know, we have these terms Deobandism. We talk about Salafism. We have these things, um, but you know, there are Deobandis and there are Deobandis. Again, you have you kind of have to 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 go into. Um, uh, go into a bit more detail in terms of who who, you're, who exactly you're talking about to to distinguish, you know, because the Deobandis, if you take a Deobandi student who's studying actually in Deoband today versus someone who's studying in Pakistan, you you'll find a, a very big difference. Book, you emphasize the importance of three key events in 1979 on shaping the modern Muslim world the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the Iranian Revolution, and the siege of Mecca. Although I'm sure we could talk for an entire podcast uh, about this question alone, perhaps you could briefly address how these events set the stage for the emergence of both the Taliban uh, and the forebears of al-Qaeda. Right. Um, yeah, as you said, you, we, we could probably talk at great length. Um let me start with uh, um, the, the Soviet invasion and what the, the 1980s jihad in Afghanistan um, sort of did, um, which is it uh, it became a, a destination for for Islamists worldwide in a lot of ways, and that's you know while our book title states you know the myth of the Taliban and Al Qaeda. Uh, between 1970 and 2010. Obviously, in 1970, we can't really talk about uh, an, uh, an organization like the Taliban that emerged in 1994 in Afghanistan later on. Um, uh, the, the individuals were, were very young at the time. But um, the Islamists that would come to Afghanistan to join the jihad um, in 
the the mostly in the 1980s um, had been involved in political activism in their home countries often um, and uh, so they had came from Algeria they came from Egypt they came from Syria they came from Jordan and uh, they had been often involved there in, in a conflict with their own governments or their own state uh, and had fled to to Saudi Arabia um, and then we, we see like a migration of a lot of these individuals um, toward, towards Afghanistan and what there really happened was like the first melting pot where, where you feel um, ideas came together of a very specific kind of individuals and we also there is like a a moment in time when Abdullah Azam, who uh, uh, was a, a Palestinian Jordanian um, uh, uh, clergyman, um, who, who went to, to 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 Pakistan and organized a lot of the support for these foreigners to come in and and support the Afghan jihad and, and fight uh, alongst the Afghans, um, sort of redefined the concept of jihad um, that became very influential. Where all of a sudden. Um, he understood jihad to be an obligation for every able-bodied Muslim, no matter where he is, um, which was very different from how it was conceived beforehand by most. Uh, so all of a sudden, if you were an able-bodied Muslim and you were sitting in Algeria, it actually was an obligation for you to come to Afghanistan and fight there um, against the Soviet invasion. And that, that really kind of like constructed a melting pot of ideas um, and individuals. And it's, it's a, uh, a network was created back then um, that, that still has great importance actually today in a lot of ways. Um, so so that, that, that really transformed and, uh, and gave opportunity to, to, for, for the individuals who would later come to form Al-Qaeda to come together in the first place. So that's why the, the Soviet uh, invasion um, for for Al Qaeda is of, of, of particularly importance. Um, for the Taliban, obviously, this is a very different. Um, uh, it has a very very different, very more local effect. It completely transformed Afghan society till its core. Um, it restructured uh, how society is ordered in a very real way, specifically down in southern Afghanistan. And uh, and shattered shattered it to the core, um, which which in a way um, is also the reason why the Taliban then later on took took power or or started to to take over Afghanistan in 1995. Four, I mean, that's five. the other two. We don't we don't really talk talk so much about the the the, the impact of um, uh, of what was going on in Iran. Um, uh, obviously, you know the 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 the, the emergence uh, of uh, kind of um, having a very kind of strong Shi government versus what they had before. Um, that you know we're we're still kind of essentially living in 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 a world which which has changed uh, as a result of that. The siege of Mecca itself. I'm not not entirely sure whether whether this was um, uh, groundbreaking. Certainly, at the time, it was it was a very kind of shocking event. Um, and you know we can see uh, traces of things which have emerged now. The kind of millenarianism uh, of um, uh, the Islamic State and so on. We can see kind of traces of that um, uh, in 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 the group uh, which 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 was involved um, in uh, in the siege of Mecca. But 
um, uh, in terms of a, a kind of a wide wider um, strand that kind of fell off uh, at least for for a few decades um, uh, in terms of kind of the, the evolution of Sunni militancy. Um, actually, you know, it was as Felix said, it was the the discussions that were going on in Pakistan and Afghanistan that that were really important, uh, certainly in terms of the trends that we've seen uh, evolving up to the present day. For a very concise answer to an extremely broad question, uh, one of the myths that your book addresses uh, is the idea of a unitary Taliban and Arab foreign fighter jihad against the Soviets. Who exactly were these Afghan Arabs, uh, as they were called, uh, that flocked to Afghanistan? And how closely did they really work and fight alongside the Taliban uh, during the anti-Soviet jihad? Well, that's kind of a complicated question in that um, a lot of the different areas of Afghanistan were quite different in terms of who was coming there, when they started arriving, how many people were there, uh, and so on. I mean, if we kind of broadly divided up into into different places. You had southern Afghanistan, uh, which was somewhat kind of cut off from the, uh, the other areas, the kind of flows of weapons and people and so on. That was all kind of coming in from a certain place. Um, and you had relatively few Arabs fighting in southern Afghanistan. Um, there are some you know, accounts written by people who, who Arabs who did fight together with, with people in, in Kandahar and places like this. Uh, but the numbers were, were again, you know, relatively few. We're talking about dozens or hundreds. Um, and, uh, you know, overall, uh, this is kind of one of the misconceptions that, that a lot of people have, that, you know, uh, Arabs, were, uh, Arabs and, and other foreigners were fighting, you know, throughout the 1980s in roughly the same levels. In fact, you know, uh, the the initial kind of first trickle started happening um, after 1983, 1984, once Azam started really kind of opening up those um, those kind of uh, floodgates. And in fact, most of the people who um, kind of ended up touching Afghanistan in some way, um, they came, you know, after the last Soviet troops had actually left Afghanistan. So you had a lot of these kind of jihadi tourists. You had people who came and they stayed in Pakistan and sometimes they would come and they would stay in some camp where they would, you know, take one trip over the border, fire a Kalashnikov for a few times, and then, you know, they would take their their blessing or their kind of religious benefit from this and take a few photos. And, um, uh, you know, most of this was happening really towards the very end and even after the, the Soviets had left in eastern Afghanistan, it was a slightly different story. Um, that's where you had uh, a lot more kind of Arab involvement. Also in northern Afghanistan, um, there was um, kind of slight, slight, slightly more involvement um, in terms of uh, foreign fighters. Uh, it differed from, from place to place. Mostly the Arabs, certainly the Arabs who were affiliated and associated with Azam, um, they tried uh, where possible to find a way to work with Afghans as kind of supporters for the Afghans, kind of force enablers, or I guess we would call them today. Um, and um, this was um, something which, which bin Laden um, started to have different thoughts about towards the end of the 1980s. Um, uh, and this was kind of one of the reasons of friction between him and Abdullah Azam uh, and bin Laden wanted to have kind of a uh, an actual kind of independent role for Ab- Arabs within Afghanistan, and he started to to put this together, and this then eventually 
um, kind of started to contribute to this kind of pod of ideas that kind of merged and later became the network that then you know we now know of as Al Qaeda. Um, but that that was kind of part of the original debate. In the expulsion of Soviet troops, you chronicle the uneasy relationship between bin Laden himself and the Taliban leadership. Uh, while the Taliban seemed initially infatuated with uh, bin Laden's high-level connections and his rumored financial largesse, you depict a sometimes very tense situation during the al-Qaeda's stay in Afghanistan. Can you perhaps delve into the interplay between the Taliban leadership and bin Laden uh, during the 1990s? Um like the Taliban inherited uh, Osama bin Laden. Um, Osama bin Laden had left Afghanistan, and he had returned in 1996 from Sudan, um, where he was expelled from because of, yeah, because of political pressure by the United States of America. And he he uh, came back to Afghanistan, to eastern Afghanistan, which at the time wasn't under the control of the Taliban. Um, Pretty soon after he arrived, um, was like a, a, sm- a small group of, of his followers um, and family members. Uh, uh, the Taliban took the area um, and and sort of inherited Osama bin Laden. He was just simply there um, uh, while they were on a move to to capture Kabul, the capital. Um, and initially, there wasn't, you know, the, the, the initially Osama bin Laden didn't really know there was there hadn't been a meeting between um, uh, him or his deputies and uh, senior members of the Taliban in the 1980s. They hadn't they hadn't met in the field. They hadn't been uh, a relationship. They didn't know each other. Um, so at, uh, initially, Osama bin Laden seemed to be quite quite careful, um, not wanting to upset his guests, who obviously were in opposition to. Uh, not upsetting his hosts, I mean, uh, who were obviously in uh, opposition to the Taliban, um, and also not upsetting the Taliban, since it wasn't really clear who would have the upper hand in the end. Um, very early on, um, the Taliban um, uh, made him a guest, uh, because he, he asked about his status, basically. Um, to him, he was known as a peer of, of, of um, uh, Abdullah Azam, he was known as a, a rich man, a person who had supported and fought in the jihad against the Soviet Union, and therefore a, a brother in arms, uh, to a certain extent, um, a supporter of Afghanistan. Uh, and they, but they very early on came under under pressure. Uh, by 1996, Osama bin Laden also had like a huge conflict with Saudi Arabia, um, who had... Uh, actually um, uh, uh, taken his passport away. Um, and then for, for a while, not much happened. Um, there were a lot of different um, uh, Arabs uh, uh, who, who were uh, operating independently at the time. There were uh, just training camps that weren't a lot of, most of them actually weren't operated by Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden at the time. Um, a lot of individuals who later would come to be uh, very famous uh, al-Qaeda operatives like uh, Zarqawi uh, in um, in Iraq actually operated his own camp and, and didn't join Osama bin Laden at the time. So the, he was really, um, besides the fact that there was pressure, he, just, he was just one person amongst uh, a many um, uh, foreign, foreigners who, who were in Afghanistan training and wanting to support the Taliban or or, uh, or, or 
yeah, um, following their own their own calling. Um, but he, he soon came into to, more into the focus of, of the of the of the Taliban because of this international pressure and because of his increasing media campaign, um, where he actually proactively reached out. He, he issued statements, called for for international jihad. Um, that, that uh, increasingly put pressure on the Taliban all the way up to um, uh, 1999 when they actually came under sanctions because mostly because of Osama bin Laden and uh, uh, the statements and threats and as well as the attacks um, that, that, that happened uh, earlier in 1998. Um, so it, was a, it wasn't a close relationship. Um, there were... Uh, ideological issues. Um, uh, a lot of the people who formed Al-Qaeda didn't conceive the Taliban to be um, uh, uh, real Muslims. This is what we talked earlier about, the differences between uh, uh, Salafism and uh, the Obandism Hanafi school of jurisprudence. Um, so they, they, they kind of lived separate lives. There was not a lot of intermingling between like the Arabs or specifically Al-Qaeda and, uh, and the Taliban. And um, there was like a continuous circle where uh, Osama bin Laden would be approached by the Taliban telling him that he shouldn't issue threats from their country, that he wasn't allowed to do this. And then Osama bin Laden in turn would say he wouldn't do it anymore. It was a mistake, but would go and do it again. Um, and that, 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 that kind of like uh, established like that, that, um, that relationship where he sort of like continued to deceive the Taliban to a certain degree. Um, but it's, you know, explaining that relationship, um, you, you really need to consider a lot of different factors. Um, uh, throughout the 90s, the, the, the international pressure um, that was exhausted through the UN sanctions specifically, for a lot of the Taliban, um, they didn't believe it was about Osama bin Laden, and they didn't believe it was about the other issues. They conceived this to be um, a fundamental uh, uh, disagreement. Um, basically, they believed that the United States of America wanted the Taliban to be gone um, uh, due, due to other issues, or, or um, not the ones they, they, they publicly stated. Um, so, so a lot of this kind of like exaggerated um, uh, their unwillingness um, um, to cooperate specifically on that issue. There was a lot of kind of personal kind of uh, bad blood or bad feeling. And you read some of the accounts of the meetings, kind of um, face-to-face meetings between Mullah Omar and um, uh, bin Laden himself. And, uh, you know, firstly, most of the time, Bin Laden seemed to practically need to be forced to actually go and sit in the same room because, you know, he was scared or he didn't want to make commitments or he didn't want to um, put himself in a situation where Mullah Omar would tell him to leave the country or something like this. Um, you know, even to the extent that we know his Pledge of Allegiance wasn't actually made in person, Pledge of Allegiance to, to Mullah Muhammad Omar as Amir al-Mu'mineen as um, kind of the, the Islamic leader um, uh, and you read these accounts of, of the meetings they're extremely strain, strained kind of um, formal occasions with them sitting kind of at either end of the room uh, you know sitting on the floor um, with uh, kind of very few few words exchanged really um, and uh, you know sometimes Bin Laden would try to, to kind of uh, exploit um, uh, certain kind of cultural uh, things 
um, in order to to kind of buy some more time for him to be able to stay. Uh, but you really get the sense that um, uh, kind of there was a lot of um, arrogance, I guess, uh, in the way that um, Bin Laden treated the relationship between the two, um, never really considering the effects on on the Taliban or Mullah Muhammad Omar when he took decisions. And this was, in fact, something that he was uh, criticized uh, a lot about by uh, among his peers, um, you know, among the kind of senior and deputy leadership um, uh, of those those close to him. Uh, even, you know, there were a lot of people who um, who were in the loop, those who were in the loop about the, um, uh, the 9-11 um, uh, planes uh, attack operation, um, there are a lot of people who criticize bin Laden mainly you know on the um, on the basis of this being kind of uh, unfair to carry out for the Taliban who would surely suffer suffer the kind of reprisals of this one thing that's been made uh, very clear to me in previous interviews is al qaeda's self image as this vanguard for the international jihad a self perpetuating violent groundswell uh, in the ummah this seems in pretty stark contrast with the Taliban uh, and their self-image and, and their long-term objectives. Can you comment on Al-Qaeda's strategic goals uh, as compared with the Taliban? Um, I mean, the Taliban's goals are were, were, were local. Um, I mean, and, and they changed over time, right? That the, the Taliban didn't form with... Um, was the objective of like uh, creating an Islamic state in Afghanistan. Um, their first objective really was, was very localized and cleaning up a few roads and, and securing a few neighborhoods and, and, and places in Southern Afghanistan. And it kind of like, you know, they, they moved the goalpost, uh, the, the, the goalpost once things started to move. Um, as in their objectives, they have always been national. Um, they're very nationalistic and nationalistic in their outview. They've always stressed um, that they wanted to have good neighborly relationships. Um, they actually, uh, very early on, and um, when they still were down in southern Afghanistan and Kandahar, they formed like sort of a foreign relations committee that uh, uh, conducted active outreach uh, in Pakistan, where like the nearest. Um, uh, foreign missions were um, uh, to try to lobby for support for their group and one of the people they specifically approached and and, and had most hopes for at the time was the United States of America um, which they, they, they considered to be somebody they could work with very early on and, and really tried out to, to, to gain support there. Um, Al-Qaeda comes uh, Al-Qaeda's thought process and sort of like ideas to the what, what, you, what you just described, the, the self-perpetuating revolt um, uh, that they, um, Osama bin Laden hoped to, to ignite um, was his three-strike theory. Um, really uh, uh, contemplates like uh, a different scale um, of, of what the Muslim Umar would be. Um, and this is, is, is probably... Not concerned. It wasn't concerned about about Afghanistan um, in that in that way, but was concerned was what they conceived to be the Muslim Omar, um, and, and which they considered to be, um, or still considered to be, um, uh, oppressed by by much of the Western world, specifically and uh, by their own governments, and then by relationship by the far enemy, as as it has been coined. 
by the United States and Western governments. Um, I think also, yeah. Sorry, I think I think also you know that there there can be a little bit of a problem when you take this kind of teleological view of. Al Qaeda and its formation, as if you know it was all kind of an organic growth from A, which led to B, which naturally led to C, as in all of these things were kind of um, uh, prerequisites for each other. Um, you, you know, I think when, particularly when you take your take 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 a position to look at the individuals involved and the kind of personal decisions and the personal discussions that were were going on. Um, the biographies of the, the key people involved, you see something a bit more complicated. Where, you know, the, the, the traditional history of Al Qaeda is that you know, you know, they had meetings essentially during the late eighties, when as a result of their kind of ideological background um, and studies um, in the time prior to arriving in Afghanistan, they then conceived of this idea of a type of jihad which would attack the. Um, uh, the far enemy as a way of dealing with the near enemy and so on. Um, uh, you know, it's not it's not quite as, uh, as straightforward as, as this. I mean, particularly when you look at um, this period of Bin Laden living in Sudan, um, it's not entirely clear that um, you know that that, that uh, had he not been kicked out of there, you know, there couldn't have been a different end uh, to this story um, by by all accounts of. People who who knew him there and, uh, and who, who were engaging with him, whether it's journalists or kind of peers and contemporaries of his, uh, he seemed somewhat settled. He seemed, you know, more involved in kind of business things. Obviously, there was still involvement uh, in sponsoring of militancy in various places, but it seemed to be on a slightly different level to what then happened later on when he was forced into Afghanistan. Um, and you know, even when when he was back in Afghanistan, there was considerable debate amongst his peers as to um, you know the proper way to um, to move forward. There were um, people who kind of wrote books and tracts, uh, which have kind of uh, now um, now people are kind of going through those and, and looking that actually there were there were a variety of different possible. Um, kind of avenues that um, these um, this network of um, um, militant Islamists could have gone down. Um, uh, you know the 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 nine eleven attacks um, and you know the Nairobi embassy bombings and so on. That was one, but th- there were various other paths they could have taken. Um, and I think it's 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 dangerous just to to kind of purely see it in in this. Um, um, uh, one leads to two leads to three kind of way. Now that we've seen uh, an ultra hardline Salafist caliphate uh, proclaimed by the Islamic State, uh, the now divorced spawn of Al Qaeda in Iraq, uh, can you comment on the differences between the Islamic State's rule in the Levant uh, as compared to the Taliban's historic and current policies uh, towards governance? Huh. That's an easy question to ask. Um, I don't know how far I've, like, I think we both obviously have, have uh, followed um, what is what's happening in the Levant or in Syria and in northern Iraq. Uh, I mean, having both lived in, in Syria for a long time, uh, it's definitely an astonishing development and, um, and uh, that we've seen over the past couple of years. I think one of the major differences I would perceive with that is, is for starters, that the Taliban are are 
in their great minority Afghans uh, who operate very close to their home even today, the insurgency. Most of the fighters who fight actively um, are, are doing so in, in, in very close proximity to where they live um, and where they come from. And in that same way, um, there is a distinctly different cultural um, background uh, to, to the Afghan Taliban, depending in which region of Afghanistan you you're, you're look at. If you look into the south, um, you know, which is dominantly by Pashtuns um, uh, and, and, and the great majority of, of, of Taliban or Afghan Taliban are actually from the, the Pashtun ethnic group. Um, there's there's a there's there's a great cultural element uh, to what they do and how they deal with problems. Um, uh, it's sort of like um, uh, not to talk about the Taliban, but to talk about Afghanistan. I often like to say, you know, um, when when Islam came to a country, um, normally Islam adopted the local culture. In Afghanistan, when Islam came, the local culture adopted Islam. Um, so we, we, I remember um, having a conversation with, with someone in Kandahar um, where, where we're talking about uh, we're talking about like a, a, a different Muslim country and I was explaining how, 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 how in this country there were also all the majority of individuals were Muslims and, and uh, um, the people who are sitting with were asking, asking me oh, oh so they do speak Pashto because for them, like speaking Pashto was as close to like being a Muslim as speaking Arabic, in a lot of senses. So there's a there's a distinct local flavor to to the to the to the Afghan Taliban um, and and the nationalistic one. Um, I mean, what what we see with the Islamic State right now is uh, global ambitions in a lot of ways, even uh, rapid growth. If 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 one wants to believe that. Um, I think there's. Uh, um, uh, I also would, would would say that the Taliban have. Um, I mean, they ruled um, great the, the a great section of Afghanistan for several years. Um, they established um, uh, sort of government institutions, which they took from the existing government, um, and they they dealt with with a lot of real-life problems in, in, in very pragmatic ways, um, even if, if other people might 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 not see it the same way. Um, so I, I think, also, yeah. I, th I think also one of the kind of the, the interesting differences between, uh, particularly when you look at something like um, kind of diplomatic engagement and how the Taliban uh, sought to engage with the outside world, um, really, kind of from 1994 onwards, particularly when it looked when it when it seemed like the Taliban, th this group which had taken a bunch of area in southern Afghanistan and kind of removed it from um, from kind of gunmen and, and, and so-called warlords, um, uh, when it looked like this was going to expand and become something bigger, maybe take the whole of southern Afghanistan, or maybe, maybe even the whole country, um, then they started to think about you know what does this mean for 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 um, their kind of diplomatic engagement, they'd have to start, as Felix said, they kind of convene a committee who started looking into um, uh, putting together policies and, uh, and kind of getting ahead of the curve in terms of starting to speak to uh, diplomatic entities um, in Pakistan. Um, they, they really were kind of um, 
um, desperate is too strong too strong a word, but they were, really were enthusiastic about trying to engage uh, with the international community. They didn't see themselves as being um, kind of outside um, the normal system. They you know they sought for many years to. Uh, reclaim the uh, Afghan seat at the United Nations as their own. Um, you know, Islamic State uh, disavows the United Nations uh, as um, uh, as not being a, a kind of an, uh, an entity uh, that they should engage with. Um, uh, the Taliban, um, you know, set up their own kind of diplomatic school to make sure that people knew how to engage in kind of diplomatic protocol and in foreign relations and the history of the, you know, um, uh, relationships between countries um, and and how this this all works. The Taliban really um, tried very hard um, to to kind of make this this engagement with with the international uh, community. Um, and you know, from their perspective, it was it was kind of unlucky that they were in this circumstance where not only they had Bin Laden, but you know the way that they had taken over the country. And some of the kind of uh, uh, things they did, um, uh, some of the policies that they enacted, um, um, uh, kind of um, uh, looked, um, kind of made, gave, gave, gave a kind of uh, an impression that made it very difficult for other countries to to engage with them uh, diplomatically. But you know, some of these decisions were taken simply because they didn't know. Um, uh, they didn't didn't know how to run a country, let's say, or um, you know, perhaps if if they they'd had um, uh, more years to um, in power, then 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 kind of policies would have been uh, changed or, or or run differently. Certainly, that that they they evolved in terms of how they approached governance from uh, from 1994 uh, to 2001. Well, it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, before we finish, would you tell us about what projects are next for you both? Yeah, we have. Um, um, we've been running um, Felix and I uh, partly as a as a kind of offshoot of work that we did um, uh, in um, working on an enemy recreated. Um, we uh, translated a, a bunch of kind of primary source texts. Um, uh, and this kind of itself is an offshoot of um, work that we'd done running this media monitoring center where we felt that um, uh, there needed, you know, there were lots of Afghan voices um, as part of the kind of discussion or the kind of narrative of what was going on, um, uh, both in terms of kind of cultural things and also the kind of the history of the country um, that needed to be heard. So, uh, we set up a, um, uh, a publishing house um, uh, which uh, has started to publish some of these primary source texts. Um, and, um, you know, this ranges from kind of uh, biographies um, of people who were involved fighting during the 1980s to the memoir of um, a former minister of higher education um, to a kind of um, senior kind of Taliban insider figure who also wrote a, a memoir. We have kind of other things coming up. So this is a way essentially for us to to publish um, the kind of raw primary texts that otherwise kind of would have gathered dust, um, um, uh, so to speak, uh, kind of inside our laptops without without seeing the light. And it's a way of kind of 
getting people to engage. And then we have a kind of wider um, uh, translation and archive project maybe Felix can talk about. Right. Yeah. Um, there's uh, there's first draft publishing, um, which, which Alex just talked about. And uh, later this year, there there will be the finish of like an, uh, an Afghan history project, um, which we've been engaged with uh, other people in working on for the couple last couple of years, nearly now. Um, which we'll see. We've gathered over over some time uh, newspapers and magazines and and other documents from the 1990s um, and uh, and and later on um, from the Taliban. Um, and uh, digitalized them um, or scanned them and uh, had huge sections of them. Um, uh, we, we, we're hoping that in the end it will be uh, uh, north of 1.5 million words uh, translated into English. Uh, so um, hopefully if, if everything works out uh, later this year, you will be able to go online um, and uh, search a, a very large database um, where you can look at the original texts as well as translations of uh, news stories, editorials, interviews that were published throughout the 1990s. Um, and post-2001. And post-2001. Um, this... Um, Obviously, we've, we've, we, we have done a lot of research on this, but like we've also been engaged now like with, with curating and, and monitoring the translation and, and curating the database. Um, it's, it's a fascinating look into the inside of, of, of you know, how did they perceive foreign policy at the time, what issues were discussed, how were they discussed, how, what kind of information was put out uh, through these official channels, um, and it, I think it, it allows, uh, it will allow um, for the first time individuals who, who, who cannot go to Afghanistan and who can't uh, interview people to, to use primary sources, uh, basically listen to what they said about themselves at that time, um, giving reasons why they came to power or why they, why they did something. So um, it'll, it'll be a, 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 I think it will be a great resource um, uh, for scholars and students alike who want to, to dive um, deeper into who the Afghan Taliban were and where they came from and what they did in the 1990s, um, since a, a lot of the material that is out there uh, in the English language is very incomplete uh, and often based on, on, on only a few, a few uh, personal interviews like this. A lot of this material has never been systematically analyzed or uh, been available to, to, to foreign researchers or local researchers for that matter. So one of the things we ourselves are hoping to generate out of this material, but also others, other documents and interviews we gathered over the years, um, uh, which is uh, uh, another spin-off project, um, is uh, a Taliban reader, um, where we hope to introduce certain themes uh, uh, and explore um, certain, certain parts of the history through their own words and through their own texts in a sort of curated form. Um, uh, that that you know, so you don't have to read the 1.5 million words. You can just <laughs> go and read uh, the um, Taliban reader uh, once it's compiled. Sounds like a very useful contribution to the literature. Well, I thank you both very much for joining us today on New Books in National Security. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.